Hey, hello, um, my name's Patrick. I'm a third year PhD student at the School of Orient and African Studies in London. Um, and my research is specifically focused on the dynamics of the drug trade in Eastern Burma in an area called Shan State. And part of that will come into my presentation today, but today I also want to talk more broadly about um, kind of how my analysis also plays into an understanding of the current peace process and maybe something we can learn from that. So the area that my research is most focused on is Shan State, which is this blue part on the map here, which shares long borders with China, a very small border with Laos, and then a long border with Thailand. Um, and in terms of kind of the key points that I really want to make today, um, I guess there's three or four really. The first is that in terms of the current peace building process that's taking place in Myanmar now, I think there needs to be a, a much deeper engagement and understanding with the fact that this process is built on a broader strategy of state building and state consolidation within Myanmar that has been developing for many decades, but especially over the past two decades. And I think we need to understand how this peace process builds on the existing strategies that have been deployed throughout the country in an attempt to try and consolidate um, control in this region. And I think through this, we're looking specifically at the borderland region, so specifically this area of Shan State that borders with China and Thailand. Um, I think there needs to be an understanding that the dynamics that play out in these kind of sub-national regions are often very different from the kind of rhetoric that is often kind of proclaimed at a national level in terms of the peace process. And actually, if you analyse what's happening on the ground there, it often gives a very different perspective through that. And in doing so, what I want to try and bring out today is a bit more of an understanding of the kind of strategies which I would call more pacification rather than peace building that have been taking place in this region over the past two decades and how they provide perhaps a more nuanced foundation for understanding what is now happening. And in particular, if I get time, when I kind of bring in some of the research on the drug trade itself, it's also the need to understand the kind of complex trade-offs that are going through this process and the kind of the often deeply illiberal foundations that have been the basis for some of these pacification strategies and being a bit more willing to engage with an understanding that all good things don't necessarily come together, that if we're looking at the peace process, we also need to engage with the ongoing drug trade in this region, the ongoing dynamics around militarization, and actually have that kind of stark conversation um, when kind of confronting this peace process. Um, so in terms of Shan State, the area that I'm looking at, just very brief background. Um, there's been over 60 years of conflict in this region. It was a region that was devastated by World War II. Very soon after World War II, um, you had a very small remnant of uh, the KMT, the Kuomintang, that didn't manage to flee from Mao um, to Taiwan, was kind of left marooned in this portion of Burma and was seen as a potential kind of force to reinvade China through the back door. At different times, was supported by the US, by the CIA. And early in the 1950s, this was a huge concern for the new Burmese fledgling government that it might incite a Chinese kind of invasion into this area. So very quickly in the early 1950s, you have the Burma army moving into this area in an attempt to kind of reduce that threat. But obviously for a lot of this area, this was the very first engagement 
that this region had with the newly independent government. It had been a region that had been kind of ruled very limitedly by both the kind of pre-colonial Burmese monarchies and also through the colonial period. The kind of the writ of the central government had rarely extended to these areas. And by the time you get to the late 1950s, the Burmese government is trying to dismantle the kind of more traditional um, kind of what you might call feudal system of rule in this area. And at the same time, a lot of the experiences of central government through this area, like I said, is a fairly brutal military force moving in. And by the late 1950s, you have what is a fairly spontaneous emergence of a kind of insurgency or resistant movement that unlike in some of the other areas of the country never really kind of formed under one single organization or group but was a whole array of different kind of armed groups that emerged to add further complication to this throughout the kind of 70s and into the 80s the communist party of burma which was kind of one of the major um, armies in kind of burma's post-colonial history um, was gradually kind of forced out of its bases in the centre of the country and set up bases um, in Shan State, kind of north, northern Shan State, close to the China border. And for a long time, the Burma army kind of took a fairly defensive position against those groups in that it didn't have the capacity and the manpower to launch offensives against them and was focused on trying to create secure zones in the centre of the country and in the Delta region. By the 1980s, it feels it's in a strong enough position to start launching military assaults onto the Communist Party in this region. And this is obviously a bit of a simplification, but on the back of that, the Communist Party collapses in the very late 80s um, and splinters into four main groups, essentially divided along ethnic lines. Um, and then very quickly after this collapse, the government, in a kind of fairly radical departure from the kind of bellicose counterinsurgency strategy that it used for a lot of this time, signed ceasefires with all four of those splinter groups. And then that kind of formed the beginning of a much more broader ceasefire process, which saw the government sign ceasefire, ceasefire agreements with a lot of groups, not only in Shan State, but also in 1994 with the KIA, with Mon parties. Um, and then over the next um, kind of 20 years, you had an increasingly complex mosaic in Shan State of groups that had signed ceasefires, groups that were continuing to fight resistance um, against this. You also had, in, especially in the early 90s, a lot of the pro-democracy protesters from the centre of the country who were fleeing to the borderlands um, following the, the crackdown um, and then the, kind of the annulment of the 1990 election. And what, what you see at this time is that the government begins to reassess its strategy to this area in light of what it sees as a growing array of kind of opportunities in this area, but also the ongoing threats in this region. So in terms of the opportunities, you have a noticeable change in its kind of neighbours policy, especially China and Thailand, which are more willing to kind of look to Burma as potential trade partners, um, you know, it's, it's linked with the kind of the end of the Cold War policy. Um, and the Burmese government was also very keen to kind of try to promote trade with its partners as a way of kind of generating more foreign exchange and more income through this area. Um, you also have um, the kind of the resources that are within this region that is kind of 
which has been shown most clearly over the last 10 years by the kind of construction of a huge oil and gas pipeline which comes right from kind of the Bay of Bengal right across the country through northeastern Shan State and is now delivering oil and gas to Yunnan and then into the rest of China from there. So there's, there's huge potential in this region um, for kind of generating income in this area. And there was also a feeling that the kind of the early success of the ceasefire agreements in the early 90s offered an opportunity to try and bring a kind of final end to the conflict in this region and to try and finally stamp authority on this area. At the same time as you have these opportunities, you also have an, a number of factors which continue to make this area a kind of neuralgia point of the Burmese state in this region, in the fact that, you know, the central government has always had very weak control over this region. It's a you know, it's a, it's a patchwork of different languages, different ethnicities. You know, a lot of the people that I spoke to were from areas where maybe there was only one person who was even speaking Burmese in that particular region, um, with the rest being kind of the ethnic languages in that area. And I think the other point to note is that even as the government and the army was moving into this region, um, this wasn't a kind of tabula rasa, it wasn't this kind of idea of a frontier zone that was kind of you know, uninhabited, ready to be controlled, ready to be civilized. There were, there were kind of, they may have been fairly volatile, but there were long existing structures of authority already in this region that the, kind of, as the government moved in, it was a, an attempt to try and navigate these. And the key point that kind of I want to bring out of this is that as the, and it was essentially the military moved in to try and kind of pacify and control these areas, there are a number of strategies that they employed that are still going on today and that are still very relevant for trying to understand the peace process. The first and most obvious is the sheer militarization of this area, that as you have the, the ceasefire agreements, the, easy, the ease with which to move troops through this area, you have a vast expansion in terms of the actual military footprint on this area. Kind of over a quarter of the entire Burma army is now based in this region. You've had huge extension in terms of the manpower, the land that's been taken to form barracks. And I think this is very much kind of linked with a kind of an ideology and a kind of rationale for trying to pacify this area. And I think this is something that kind of Stathis Kalivas talks about in his work on kind of the logic of violence and civil war. And that often the, there's the notion that regardless of what people's kind of preferences are, control will often bring compliance. That if you're in an area and you're making decisions in terms of how to kind of secure yourself and secure the safety of your family, regardless of what your kind of political beliefs may be, you're often kind of going to kind of take a fairly kind of pragmatic approach to this. And I don't necessarily think that's actually played out, but I think that was part of the rationale for kind of trying to have a kind of pacification rather than using the ceasefires as a beginning of any kind of political process and political dialogue. It was far more an idea that if we could pacify and could control these regions, the legitimacy, the compliance will gradually come with that. Um, alongside all this, you've had that even as the military has moved into these areas, it's had the difficulty of one, the fact that the sheer manpower simply doesn't control an area of which is hugely kind of rugged topography, you know, it's hills and valleys, it's like we said, kind of populations who have it tended to view the central government with huge suspicion as bringing kind of abuses, taxation, forced labor, violence. <coughs> um, so there's, there's often been strategies in terms of how to actually kind of control these areas on the ground, which 
very, which differs hugely from the rhetoric you get at a central level. And what you've often seen through this is that you've had the emergence of increasingly kind of informal structures of armed force, especially the formation of militias in this area. And the reasons for this are multiple. A lot of it has been a kind of gradual kind of divide and rule strategy, an attempt to try and pull groups off from either ceasefire groups or ongoing insurgent armies, and an awareness that simply forcing them to kind of lay down their arms or join the central army was unlikely to happen. And instead, there was often more of an agreement that, you know, if you could maintain your weapons, if you could retain a degree of territorial control, but if you were willing to no longer um, kind of fight against the Burma army, but to be kind of nominally allied to it, we would kind of leave you to it. So you, you've had an increasingly complicated structure here of a growing kind of multiplicity of groups that are emerging, um, of militias, of ceasefire groups, of ongoing insurgent groups. Um, and often these militias are also seen as a way of kind of blurring the lines between central authority and local structures of authority, that often these militias are run by local respected people who can speak the languages, who know the topography, who can provide kind of information or guidance in these areas. Um, and through this, you've also got the attempt that the army has tried to do to try and kind of build compliant elites effectively in these areas, to try and give people in these areas a vested interest in supporting the encroachment of the government and of administrative structures rather than necessarily trying to oppose this. So this has been often through kind of economic concessions, political concessions, whether people have, were invited to the National Convention to, sign the con to kind of define the constitution or have become members of parliament either for the government party or in constituencies in which the government party agreed not to stand against them. Um, and probably I won't have time to talk about this now, um, but maybe it can come up in the Q&A, is how the illicit economies in this area, um, especially the drug trade, has often become a part of this deal-making, of these attempts to kind of win the loyalty of ceasefire groups, of um, militia groups, or of these kind of local elites in this area. And I think the kind of, what we need to bring out of this is that this kind of strategy has been going on for kind of over the last two decades. And then as you've had the emergence of now this kind of national level peace process, and I still don't think there's a kind of definitive answer for exactly how that came about, whether it was a kind of desire of Tan Shui to have a legacy that was kind of involved in this, whether it was actually simply the next step on a fairly well-defined kind of roadmap to disciplined democracy that they've talked about for the last kind of 15, 20 years, whether it was an attempt to kind of rebalance their reliance on China with trying to kind of engage with the Western world a lot more, um, or whether it was a kind of realisation that they were a lot behind in kind of developmental terms from a lot of their ASEAN neighbours. Um, but I think regardless of that, that as this kind of peace process has gained momentum, actually if you look at what's going on on the ground in Shan State, it's very much more a continuation of these kind of more kind of robust kind of a liberal coercion intensive pacification strategies and you see that within from the army's perspective on the one hand there are those that perhaps are aware that kind of the potential for a kind of more durable peace settlement offers a chance to bring an end to the conflict a chance to kind of exploit more effectively the resources in these areas and to kind of have a more kind of positive 
economic development in these areas. But at the same time, there's also a strand that kind of feels that if we can continue with the pacification strategies that we've been doing over the last 10 or 20 years, it's not going to be that long until we don't even need to sit at the table and actually have these discussions and actually give anything tangible to the kind of resistance movements. That the, this kind of, as brutal as it's been, in terms of the amount of territory that opposition groups control, it's vastly less now than it was 15 or 20 years ago. And I think there's a feeling, especially within kind of the military, that, you know, give it another five, 10 years and these strategies will come to fruition and will be completed. And I think there's a similar tension within the kind of non-state armed groups that on the one hand, they're coming from a huge position of weakness at the moment. Like, I've spoken to a lot of these groups and there's very little optimism about the peace process. It's more a kind of rational calculation that they're in a very weak position, that while the international community is watching, that perhaps this is an opportunity to try and extract as many concessions as possible while the world is watching. But on the other hand, there's also the flip side of that, that one, there's the huge distrust, but there's also a kind of rationale for a kind of wait and see approach that if they're in an extremely weak position, that's not necessarily encouraging them to come to the negotiating table. There's a perhaps hope that if they can see this out, that in the kind of geopolitical cauldron that's in this area with the US getting increasingly involved with China, with Thailand, um, that perhaps if they can hold out, that there's the potential that things will change in a way that will be less detrimental to their interests. And alongside that, there's a very keen awareness that this kind of process is probably going to be a continuation and a repetition of what was played out over the last 20 years under ceasefire politics, which was very much ceasefire now, we'll talk politics later, and it's questionable whether the politics will actually ever get discussed through this. So I think without wanting to be too negative, I think there needs to be a kind of awareness that what is going on at the subnational level is built on a much broader strategy of kind of state building and state consolidation that perhaps has a different logic from the kind of um, peace process that is often kind of in the headlines. So I think that's run out of time. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat>